The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. More than 40% of people in their 40s and 50s have both an aging parent and a child under the age of 21. Caring for people in multiple generations demands time, love, attention, and more. Welcome to Caught Between Generations with your host, Dr. Merrill Griff. Our program will bring you the information you need as a family caregiver for everyone for whom you care. With guest experts and resources to help you keep sane and organized. Now, here is Dr. Meryl Griff. Welcome to Caught Between Generations. Joining us today is John Hunter. And John is the developer of the World Peace Game and the author of World Peace and Other Fourth Grade Achievements. I am very excited. Actually, I'm beyond excited. Um, I have been able to interview John previously, and I actually have had the honor of hearing John speak and being able to actually meet him. So whether or not you currently have a child in in school. John is a person of wisdom. He really is a very wise person from which we all have a lot to learn. This is a very important show with words and thoughts about the way we raise and educate our children or grandchildren and ways in which we could actually achieve a more peaceful existence. Let me share with you just a little bit about John Hunter. John is an acclaimed teacher and educational consultant. He has spoken at TED, the Aspen Ideas Festival. He has spoken at the Pentagon and the United Nations. And he has spoken around the world sharing the lessons of the World Peace Game. He has appeared on NPR, NBC, MSNBC. Take initials, John has been there. Welcome to Caught Between Generations, John. Oh, Merrill, thank you so much. What a buildup. I, I feel like I'm royalty now. Thank you so much. Well, you, you, your work is just very exciting. It's been great work. So, John, explain to us what is the World Peace Game? Well, Merrill, it's a geopolitical simulation that I, I stumbled upon inventing in 1978. In my first teaching job in Richmond, Virginia, uh, I was tasked with creating something uh, for ninth graders in social studies, and I did not know what to do. It was my first job. And my supervisor at the time gave me a gift. At the time, I didn't realize it was. She said, what do you want to do? And I asked, what should I do in order to teach children well? And that non-answer was such a great opening that allowed me to actually dig deep in myself and come up with what I had to offer rather than following a script. And, of course, I coupled that with uh, problem solving, which was in vogue at the time, and uh, game playing, which is what the children loved, I learned to follow their loves and passions. So we had to create a game and put problem solving in. And my course curriculum requirement was uh, social studies, uh, actually at the African Social Studies Unit, Africa continent. So I sort of did a mashup of all those things, and that was the first World Peace game on a giant four-by-five board on the floor with hundreds of game pieces. And I gave the kids problems to solve, having no idea whether they could do it or not. 
not knowing it would work and never thinking it would go beyond just a week or so of play. And that's how it began, actually. So, John, what are the kind of universal, broader concepts behind the World Peace Game? Mm. Well, it's, it's evolved now to a four-foot-by-four-foot-by-four-foot plexiglass towering structure with four plexiglass horizontal sheets, uh, hundreds of game pieces on every level, and the children are still tasked with solving all the world's problems. The game is won by all the problems in the world, like 50 interlocking global problems being solved. And every country in the game, their asset value must increase by the end of the game. I used to think that the point of the game was conveying knowledge or, or teaching concepts, you know, standard educational uh, uh, dogma, really. But what the children and the game have shown me over almost four decades is that the real purpose has been in helping to develop outstanding human beings who understand that compassion is the root of our human expression and communication with each other, and with a goal of decreasing suffering for all, that we are all interdependent. And therefore, what I do affects not only me, but it may affect you as well. It's not something I set out to teach, and I don't preach it, but it, it arises and reveals itself in every game, every generation of students we play. You know, I think it's an important point for people who are not familiar with the game, um, that when you talk about countries, that you are not using, uh, as I remember, real and actual countries. Is that correct? Oh, very good, Merle. Your you're you're memory is very sharp. Yeah, we started out with real countries back in 78, and that was fine for a while. But then I began to notice that the students, their the problem solving was slowing down and getting muddled, and they were not solving these global problems like they had. And I wondered what was going on, and finally I realized they were, I overheard them talking. They had been listening to their parents, listening to the news reports, and basically uh, emulating what adults were doing in the real world with real world countries, and failing just the same. So I stripped out real countries, put in fictional ones. The problems, of course, are models of actual problems in the world. Everything from ethnic and religious and minority strife, water rights problems, nuclear proliferation, nuclear waste, famine, breakaway republics, you name it, it's in there. And uh, the students are given all those problems simultaneously at once to solve, and of course, everything goes wrong immediately, and it's supposed to. They learn how to fail in a safe and appropriate environment, and they fail and fail and fail until they discover how to move through on their own without a teacher's input. They, they depend on what we call collective wisdom. So the real world countries went out and fictional countries opened the door to a much wider uh, creative uh, creative uh, avenue or venue for the students to work in it. I, I think the, um, the issue here that's so important to me, and we've talked about this on previous shows, um, in one particular show called The Gift of Failure, that there is this tendency that we don't want to let the children fail. You know, and and that failure is not good for them, um, especially as we live in this world of what's called participation trophies. You know, you showed up for mm-hmm. soccer, you get a trophy, and yet yeah. you're saying you want the kids to fail, and it's actually good for them. Well, yeah, it's, it's uh, along with that analogy of the skint knees, where you try to prevent parents try to prevent their children from ever having anything untoward ever happen in their lives. Of course, we all want the best for our children. We all want the best for each other. We want to be safe happy. There's nothing wrong with that. But uh, on the other hand, if we have no idea how life really works, and life is full of both ups and downs, 
we will never be prepared, never be able to handle or navigate these difficult times that are assured us, that will surely come to all of us in our lives. We'll all experience disappointments and tragedies. But we have no training for that. We have training only for success. And so we leave that entire side of life out because we're afraid of it. We don't like it. It's, it's uncomfortable, of course. But in this game, we allow students to experience the downside of things in a safe, appropriate game like that, where the stakes are not so high. And they practice learning how to manage defeat and failure and things that do not succeed. They practice how to come through, and they have some skills, some confidence, some, some base of understanding how things work in life itself. And they have written for decades now, they write back to us and let us know that this experience of handling not only the positive, but the negative or the dark side of things has been so helpful to them in their entire lives, not just for winning. You, you discuss in your book the actual, and maybe you don't see it this way anymore, you talk about three components of education. Um, it's kind of like the three-legged stool. Are, it's now decades later. Are you still feeling that that is a valid concept? Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> well, I don't have the book in front of me. Would you remind me of the three? three sure, words? absolutely. I, I have it in front of me. Um, it's knowledge, creativity, and wisdom. Ah, very good. Actually, John, um, I want to tell you, I just want to tell you one thing. I really give you credit. I cannot tell you how many authors I, I interview, and I'll, because I read the books before I interview uh, them, I'll mention, uh, I'll allude to something in the book, and, and you are the first person who's really been very honest and just said, <laughs> hey, I don't remember it. Will you just repeat it to me? <laughs> and they end up talking about something that's absolutely sometimes irrelevant to what we're talking about because they don't, they just won't say, huh, don't remember that one. I'm having a little uh, memory lapse here. Could you just repeat it to uh, me? So I give you a lot of credit for that. So go ahead with knowledge, creativity, and wisdom. Oh, thank you for helping me out. <laughs> yeah. Not yeah, a problem. It's been a few years. I'm a little older now, so, you know. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to add a fourth leg to that three-legged stool of knowledge, uh, wisdom, and creativity. And this is uh, maybe something I neglected to, to add uh, back then. I think those three legs still hold. We certainly want children to have a general knowledge about how things work, how the world works, how people work, and what life, the mechanics of living, you might say. They, of course, change and evolve daily, but we have some idea, some idea about the universes. You know, a smile is, is a good thing in most situations with all people, for example. Uh, the creativity, of course, we, we need and we require, and it may be our saving grace that we're able to innovate and create our way out of some of these very serious problems that we put ourselves into. And only our children, and they're going to have to be the ones to do this. It's, it's too late for my generation, sad to say. Too late for generations just before me. Uh, they are our only hope, really. And so we were hoping that they can not only develop creativity, but they can develop the ability to create conceptual tools to solve problems that had not yet even occurred. And finally, the wisdom to understand and know how to apply creativity and knowledge. Uh, that kind of deep wisdom is, is based in not a particular set of uh, understandings, not a particular code or creed or a dogma or school of thinking, I don't think. It seems to be developed in students who have the opportunity to examine first themselves on a granular level to do this regularly and relentlessly. We call it self-introspection. 
And so we have the things that cause them disharmony and problems in their lives as best they can. To recognize the great things in themselves and to boost and to firm those. And then to apply that same introspection to the world where they come at things with a fresh, open mind and not a precept, not a presupposition, not a pre-developed perspective that they've been spoon-fed by some other large industry that's designed to, to give them preset ideas. That wisdom would come from just examining existence as it is. And the fourth uh, leg I want to add to the stool is, um, I guess I would say, compassion. And in order for the other three to really have um, range, the other three to really have an impact that lasts, an impact that is sustainable, there has to be that human-to-human support. And I, I won't stop at love. I'll go beyond love and say compassion, not only caring for someone, but making an effort to ensure their personal happiness, whatever that may be for them. So those four legs now, I, I should go back and rewrite that chapter and add another leg to that stoop like That's what the kids have taught me all the time. You, you know, John, it just strikes me that these are... Um Incredible concepts, but they're very, very um, complex. So we're going to have a short break, but when we come back, I want to I want to try to wrestle with how you teach such complex concepts to fourth mm. graders. I mean, that's really mm. what we're talking about. And the other thing I want to ask you, John, when we come back is, you know, you teach us so much about collaboration and peace. I want to ask you about why you so frequently quote uh, the art of war. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. At SarahCare, we provide daytime activities and health-related care for seniors who need assistance and support during the day. It is 101 activities and home by dinner. While we pride ourselves on the quality of our care, the Sarah Care Way sees beyond your loved one's needs to understand them as a unique individual. We care for individuals with chronic diseases, memory loss, stroke, Parkinson's disease, or those who may be feeling depressed and isolated. Our program is designed to encourage seniors to remain involved in activities of their choice, customized to meet their interests and abilities. Our outings include lunch at favorite restaurants and trips to the movies, concerts, or shopping at a cost that is less than five hours of in-home care. Your family member can attend one of our centers all day and be cared for by professional nurses and activity assistants. Transportation and financial assistance is available. Call 1-800-472-5544 today to learn how Sarah Care can help or visit us on the web at sarahcare.com. That's S-A-R-A-H-Care.com. Do you feel that you aren't at your best when it comes to your personal health? Even if your doctor gives you a clean bill of health and says everything is in working order, perhaps you aren't feeling at the top of your game. Dr. Rebecca Risk overcame pain and fatigue despite all tests to the contrary. Learn how she put her health back on track and how you can too on Falling Through the Cracks, live every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You 
are listening to Caught Between Generations. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Merrill at CaughtBetweenGenerations.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Call Between Generations. I'm Dr. Merrill, and I'm here with John Hunter, who is an acclaimed teacher and educator and author of World Peace and Other Fourth Grade Achievements. So before we took the break, I was saying to John that, you know, these concepts that um, he's teaching and imparting to the children are very complex and very abstract, that it just amazes me that he's able to do that with four fourth graders. I mean, John, I, I mean, are they really able to understand these concepts? You know, it, it, it's a surprising thing to me every time. I, I remain amazed every time I see this happen. I'm not quite sure how this occurs, to, to be quite honest with you. I am the so-called teacher. I am the one who signs off on everything in my classroom. But what the collective wisdom of the students comes to create, what their synergy brings about is something that is beyond anything I could plan or design as a curriculum designer in my classroom. The concepts, of course, are complex, and I want them to wrestle with those things. I I cannot and I do not give them guidance on what way to think or how to think or even any tools to think with. They really have to invent from scratch. It's almost like the invention of fire. They've got to come up with everything on their own. And I, as a teacher, I might have some idea about how these concepts work and how the complexities integrate together. But when we allow the students the opportunity to wrestle without our interference, without our adult wisdom being superimposed upon them, without our past historical knowledge being added on top of their thinking before they even get a chance to examine on their own, when we step back long enough, then we find that this almost magical kind of thinking, uh, this almost magical kind of creativity occurs. Uh, every time they solve these complex issues in different ways, different generations, different locations, all kinds of kids from all walks of life, all different ethnicities, the races, uh, age levels. Now we go from nine years up to college age students. And uh, it astounds everyone who sees it. Uh, we wish that adults could simply look at this and say, oh, my goodness, how it could be done. And these are, of course, still children. that They're still doing childlike, giving childlike solutions and ideas. But the rudiments of them are, the essence of their ideas are uh, sound and practical. So much so that um, you mentioned our visit to the Pentagon. And a long story short, we were invited in to share, the students were invited in personally to share their experience in understandings and how they solved the very same problems that some of our top military leaders were wrestling with. This was a serious peer-to-peer, one-to-one meeting. It lasted for hours. These adults were not, uh, as we say, playing around. It was quite serious, quite sincere. This is not a, a photo opportunity. And consequently, we've had meetings with the State Department and the U.S. Embassy uh, who have also said, you know, this is the best diplomatic training we could possibly find. We don't have training like this. We wish we had. That the students are not instructed what to do. They devise their own best solutions without interference from the supposed experts and adults 
who might seem to know. So the complexity that they solve is not really in my hands. I'd like to take credit for it, but it's something that they do, their collective wisdom is able to produce every time they play, and I'm just amazed that it happens. John, let's kind of paint the picture a little bit more about the game. So we have these now fictional countries. So do you decide what roles the children are going to play? I mean, who's going to be a prime minister? Who's going to be a president? You know, how does that get decided? Oh, very good. Uh, it's a bit open. I do have to have a relationship with my students to play. That's a key, uh, key to any really successful curriculum endeavor, I think is knowing your students well and really caring about them and then feeling that. So with their relationship, I will suss out or try and discern who needs a shot at leadership, who in here has the seed of leadership, or perhaps it's already developed and need to extend it more. Who would make good leaders? Now, I could be wrong, but I simply make my best intuitive judgment as a teacher with a relationship that I have with the students, and I offer the role of leadership, the head of one of the four fictional countries, the prime ministership, or the head of the United Nations Secretary General, uh, the head of the World Bank, or even the head of the arms dealers. We have that organization in here, too. And uh, the weather goddess. We have somebody in charge of random events that occur, very nonpartisan party. So those leadership positions I will offer. And, of course, students, because we have a very peer-to-peer relationship, can turn me down. They can say, no, Mr. Hunter, I don't want to do that. They can decline. But those who do say, like, the... the uh, those who do accept can then choose their own staffs. They, they choose a secretary of state, a minister of defense, a, a chief financial officer. The World Bank has CEOs and CFOs. Arms dealers have the same kinds of business officers. The United Nations has deputy secretaries, undersecretaries. We even have a legal counsel now with the World Court. And uh, the legal counsel uh, individuals look through all the treaties and agreements that pass through the hands of all students in the entire game. There's quite a lot of activity and, and paperwork going on. But, yeah, the leadership is based upon a teacher's intuition. And we, they make up what they can. And sometimes leadership even change it. And we have uh, the possibility of a coup d'etat. We have had students abdicate their thrones or authorities. We've had uh, the saboteur. And we have a, a student whose job it is to derail the entire game secretly. The saboteur derailed an entire country until the students as a group to figure out how to bring everything back online together. So that's our leadership structure and how it works in the game in real time. John, so let me get back to the um, a quote that you do. So you do quote, you know, from the art of war, um, mm-hmm. really at the start of every game. So mm-hmm. it, it just seems so out of place with all the <laughs> concepts of peace and cooperation um, that you're talking about. Can, can you explain that to me? Well, it certainly seems out of place to me when I first encountered it, because, you know, it wasn't my idea. Uh, a student, a young man, uh, brought in this little pocket-sized book called The Art of War. I'd heard of it. I read bits and pieces of it when I was in college, maybe. And he said, Mr. Hunter, can we put this in the game? Can we have it in the game somehow? And I said, why do you want to do that? So It's a war book, isn't it? He said, not really. My mom is a businesswoman, and she reads it every day. And she says it helps her in business to not make mistakes and to understand other people around her who are against her. So we read through it together, and that group that was playing looked it over, and we all decided we wanted to include it in the game. Since that day, we've included it in the game. I read a session uh, every game day before we start the game play. Uh, I read a, a verse or two from the 
the book. And come to find out, Sun Tzu, a Chinese general from 2,500 years ago, a uh, very successful uh, military campaigner, is writing basically about how not to go to war or how to get out of it quickly if you must engage in it. And so you do the least amount of damage and create the least amount of suffering. Now, this is a successful military uh, warlord, so to speak, who's written a book about how not to do what he does very well. The children, uh, at least the student, the little boy who brought it to me, understood that. And so we use it as a guide of how to do what a very wise general long ago figured out about warfare, and that is that warfare is the worst, the last and worst tool in our diplomatic toolkit, so to speak. And that uh, it's used only when necessary, but if you must use it, minimize it completely so that it's not used extensively. It's an awful tool, an awesome tool. And the students, I think, in the reading of Sun Tzu really do viscerally sort of get that. It's, it's a beautiful thing to see even fourth graders grapple with. I think there's a, one Sun Tzu quote, for example, about not pressing a desperate enemy or allowing an enemy a way out when they're surrounded. Totally contrarian to most people's thinking. So the students wrestle with that. What does it mean to allow mercy? What does it mean to allow grace when you have the upper hand, for example, is what Sun Tzu is, is asking us to think about. John, it's just fascinating to me. I mean, I can see the tremendous growth the students have while they're with you in the fourth grade. I mean, what do you see in the students as they continue? I mean, do you see continued growth in the fifth and sixth grade, or do they return to old patterns? What do you see happening with them? Oh, that's a beautiful question. You know, it's it's a bittersweet thing for teachers because uh, if you have them, they leave your classroom at the end of your school year, and who knows, you may never, ever see them again. You may never know whatever happened to them. As much energy and time and love and heartache and sweat that you put into helping them, they may just simply disappear from your life. So when they do come back, when you do hear about them again years later, it's one of the most heartwarming things that can ever happen to a teacher. So fortunately, I've been able to hear from students who come back and let me know what the effect of this game has been on their lives. And it's just been the most moving, moving thing. One example is Amelia, who's a fiery little uh, prime minister in the World Peace Game documentary, World Peace and Other Fourth Grade Achievements. And Amelia, uh, in the game, uh, through a, a diplomatic loophole that she overlooked, <laughs> gave away a portion of her country. <laughs> Very upsetting. Uh, but she learned through that experience, and she had some other difficulties with the water rights issues, I believe. The following year, fifth grade, Amelia was reading in her weekly reader, a little uh, magazine uh, that's for elementary school kids comes out, about uh, water issues uh, in, I think it was Mozambique. Uh, the article, short article, just written for kids, said that you know people were dying because of lack of clean water. They could not get access to water that was not fouled. And it said in the article also that it takes $100 to put a clean water well in a village in Mozambique. Amelia immediately, because she viscerally, physically had undergone the same trauma, immediately organized a charity among her, her colleagues, her peers, her colleagues, other fourth and fifth graders. She collected pennies, nickels, dimes, quarters, half dollars. She collected over $100 and then got an adult to facilitate the transfer of those funds. She followed the process to make sure it happened. The well was dug and put into a village. And consequently, lives in the real world were saved by an experience a nine-year-old girl had in a simulation 
about a similar problem a year before. And now you know, ladies and gentlemen, why I so admire John Hunter. I'm so sorry to break you, but we have to go for a short break. Sorry. When we come back, where I actually want to be talking to John about, you know, what influence factors have in in this day and age that he thinks have on the game, such as No Child Left Behind or The Age of Entitlement um, and video games? We'll be right back. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Where's your mom? What's she doing? You'd know if she was at Sarah Care Daytime Senior Care and Activities. You'd know she's enjoying a full day of activities program just for her interests, like art classes, volunteering, pet care, and card club. And she's home by dinner. And what's different is that Sarah Care actually has nursing care right there with her. So you'd know. Try one free day of care at SarahCare. Call 330-451-6108. How's your mom? She's just fine at SarahCare Daytime Senior Care and Activities. Addiction can affect our relationships, our families, our home, and work lives. But most importantly, ourselves. The recovery process can do wonders in the lives of people suffering from active addiction and also for those that love them. It's not just 12-step programs, but so much more. Start by tuning in to Miracles in Recovery with host Ray Lynch, Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Hope is in your corner. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Caught Between Generations. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Dr. Merrill at CaughtBetweenGenerations.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, welcome back to Caught Between Generations. I'm Dr. Merrill, and we've just been having a great time with John Hunter, who is the author of World Peace and Other Fourth Grade Achievements, just, just hearing just wonderful stories about how children have just grown and mature and even through failure um, and through the world peace game. John, I wanted to ask you, I mean, things, you wrote this many, many years ago, and obviously there's been a lot of social change and things Mm. have changed. So I wanted to ask you a number of questions about that. One of them being, you know, as the game continues to be used, what reaction are you getting from educators um, with uh, No Child Left Behind and their feeling about, you know, they have to teach to the test? Um, Do they have time for the world peace game do they see mm. it as important enough to integrate into their classrooms now mm. you know it's a, it's a very interesting question because I, I my background is public school education i come from public schools i taught in public schools all my career that's all i really knew uh with the introduction of the world peace game to the ted talk and a talk at the national association for independent schools at, in seattle a few years ago, suddenly the door opened and independent schools, or we, we call them private schools, charter schools, were, uh, shall we say, extremely interested 
more so, I'm sad to say, than my own public school systems. And I understand why, I think. In the public school, we have uh, No Child Left Behind and things like that that have put so much uh, quant- quantification pressure, uh, quantifying what is in a child's mind and heart, uh, so much pressure that way that it's, it's very difficult for public school teachers to have the freedom to teach what they know and love the best. Uh, they often have scripts handed to them, uh, which in, in what should be a very spontaneous uh, process led by the child's insights, understandings, and interests. Uh, the Montessori system, Maria Montessori, talks about the child being the book and, the, and following the child's interests as a way of developing curriculum. And the Wolfies game, I had the great opportunity in public schools to develop it, uh, seemingly a parallel to what Maria Montessori was saying. And that kind of uh, freedom has allowed the game to expand in a way now that it's, it's in 15 countries around the world and over 30 U.S. cities. And some public schools are finding a way, usually it has to be after school and after school clubs and programs uh, where they're able to, to implement this because the, uh, the curriculum strictures during the day are so, so tight that it's very hard to work in anything that's as open-ended as a world peace game and something that requires so much time and energy. Have you seen any reaction to children who, I mean, are so used to video games? Um, this is so much different than what they experience on an everyday basis now. Well, you know, I'm, I'm startled, actually. I'm frankly surprised that children seem to be, and I've, I've had a chance to observe quite a, a few thousand now, seem to be completely more engaged with live-action, real-time, real-world physical objects than, than I've seen them in video games. The reports we get from students who are playing the World Peace game from their parents, and now in locations all over the world where I play the game, their parents come back and say, my child came home talking about this game, talked about it all through dinner, talked about it through bedtime, talked about it until they went to sleep. Sometimes they don't go to sleep because they're just dreaming about it, thinking about it all night, coming the next day completely ready to take on the challenge. And this is not an isolated case. This happens time and time again. I'm amazed. But what I had to do early on was I had to really consider in this day and age whether or not there was a video application or online application, a digital application for this game. And I've done something very contrarian. I deliberately decided that this game will not be on the Internet, will not be in a video game or smartphone app or any kind of electronic media. It will be physical, face-to-face, visceral, in the room with people you know and understand. A relationship has to be there. In a human level, there will not be hundreds of strangers playing the game together. And that's a contrary decision in this day and age when everything is on the Internet and everything strives to be on the Internet. We tried it a few years ago. Students in my class said, let's try some computers in the game. And we found it to be a complete distraction. I mean, there are some uses, certainly, to look up information, to get facts and figures, to help us make calculations and so forth. But it turned out to take away from the deep and complex thinking and problem solving that has to go when there are no answers at all. There's nothing to depend on but oneself and your own team, your teammates. That kind of thinking and dependence, interdependency is what's fostered in an environment where we don't have the sum total of all human knowledge in our pockets on a smartphone. So in conjunction, of course, you can do quite a lot. Students are allowed to look up information to home when they go home between sessions. That's fine. But in the game, in the heat of the moment, 
I want their thinking clear. I want their minds to be open and fresh to the in-the-moment immediacy of the real world in front of them and not clouded over by a screen. So we worked with MIT for about a year and a half. There was a great uh, invitation from them to consider this. And I did consider the digitization of the game for a while. But we, ca- we came back to the idea that it's just best. It was, it's what's good for children. What's best for children is to have hands-on. And so that's how we've stayed with it for now. I, I really give you a lot of credit for that. Uh, I'm sure that was a difficult decision, but I would agree with you, probably a good decision. So the, right. the other social change we're seeing, the other is is the development of helicopter parents. So I could just picture these helicopter parents kind of storming you, John, and saying, wait a minute, you know, my child should be the president. You know, my child should be the prime minister. You know, what do you mean he's a saboteur? You know, what are you doing here, Mr. Hunter? Oh, Dr. Merrill, I, I laughed so hard when you said that. <laughs> you know, you're right on. You can see on the mark. There are, and there have even been parents who come to me and said, Mr. Hunter, I am a helicopter parent. I will be around. <laughs> Literally have announced and claimed, claimed the title. So what we have done, and this is almost an intent from the beginning, it is the child's world. It is not even my world, it is their world, and it is the world they will inherit without me, without their parents, without us. So what I've tried to do is create complex issues, and there is a formula for how I build these strip to interlocking global problems. They're tied together interconnectedly so that if one thing changes, the effect ripples through the entire equation, so everything changes and shifts. You can never look at a problem in isolation and solve it. Everything is, as it is in life, interdependent, interconnected. So I've made the problem so complexly, fiendishly complex, that only children can solve and adults cannot. That when the children go home, if the parents happen to get wind of what's going on, the more the child reveals about what the nature of the problem actually is, the more the adult becomes befuddled and has to throw up their hands and give up. The children really are the only ones who know what's going on, and so they're really the only ones who can solve. The parent, and I, I want the children, your parents might try to help you, but they're not in the room playing the game with you, and their advice is not going to be as good as your own information that you develop. So please ignore what your parents say about this game. <laughs> and so far, parents laugh. There's never been no complaints. We just had laughter. And we've had laughter from the right, from the left, and from the center. Never had a complaint. Not one. Over almost 40 years in all kinds of populations, all kinds of schools, never once, this is astounding to me too, Dr. Merrill, never had a complaint from a parent about this game in practice. I've had parents assisting children, as you say, become leaders, and that was quite an interesting uh, jousting match. But, uh, you know, I I had to say the game is what it is, and I offer the roles, and a parent did insist my child should be a leader. They shouldn't be in this floating role that you have for them, this legal counsel thing. But it turned out that the child, when left to their own devices, made the legal counsel, which was our new position at the time, uh, a stable institution of the game with tremendous power and respect and ability and and a lot of fun. And, of course, the parent didn't think it was uh, worthy because it was not one of the premier roles that they'd heard about. So the, the game and the children make of it what it should be. So what happens, John, with the child who... Um, 
wants to be the center of the story. I mean, because you there is a lot of discussion about interdependence and teamwork. And so what, what happens with the child that says, look, you know, I want to be the center of the story. You know, as far as I'm concerned, Mr. Hunter, there is like no advantage to being a very small part of the whole. <laughs> well, the game is designed so that those small parts can suddenly become critical parts. So no, no, we never know who's going to become the critical engine of the game. It could be the, the CFO out in left field that doesn't say much. We just don't know. So we do have those children who have uh, developed, well-developed egos, shall we say. And I do what all teachers do. You make a, an intuitive judgment and decision about what's best for that child, what's best for your classroom, what's best for your group, how the personality should integrate best based on your best professional judgment. And sometimes... Those students, I ask them to take a secondary role. They learn humility. They learn acceptance. They learn that there are other ways to see things other than their way. And they may be disgruntled about it at first, but the overwhelming ethos of the game, the overwhelming energy of the game, they soon surrender that ego because they're so caught up in the moment of the excitement of saving the world. They, they buy that fiction that they really are saving the world, and that excitement overcomes those, those petty ego concerns. And sometimes I have students who we don't think are leaders at all. And I, and I have a sense about them, offer them a role, and they might hesitantly accept it and turn out to be world leaders, turn out to be amazing individuals. And that's, that's always an astounding thing, too. So this, this idea of, of students uh, chosen by the teacher, hopefully to do what they do best, egos at stake. You know, the one story in my book, very briefly, is we had a bully that I, I thought it would be best if that bully had a chance to experience responsibility for others. and So I gave them a leadership role. Boy, was I misguided. <laughs> and it didn't change them at all. The child continued to bully in a formalized way. Now my game was destroying the entire game because they were taking over countries one by one with their bullying ways. There was nothing I can do about it because the teacher in the game has no power. I have ceded all power to the children. Only I'm, I'm only the facilitator, the clock watcher, the procedural clarifier, the question asker. So the students took care of that situation because they developed in secret a uh, a coup d'etat mechanism that basically uh, pledged every child in that that, uh, bullish cabinet to stand one by one in a coup d'etat attempt until he was finally taken down. They overwhelmed him with force in a formalized way in the game. It's in the book. It's an ama- it was an amazing thing to see happen because I thought all was lost. I had no idea what to do. And that's what I have to recognize as a teacher, too, that, you know, I have an old Apple IIe computer brain here in the 21st century. I'm from the 1950s. I- I'm not jo- a 21st century John, person. John, I- I- I'm going to enjoy I I don't believe that for a moment, but I want you to take that supposedly Apple II brain and just hold it for a minute <laughs> while <laughs> right, we I'll go to break. Okay, all right, when we come back, we're going to talk to John about his um, concept of empty space, and we're going to get a quick um, catch-up on what John's been doing since uh, in these last decades since he's invented and developed the World Peace Game. Stay tuned. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. 
At SarahCare, we provide daytime activities and health-related care for seniors who need assistance and support during the day. It is 101 activities and home by dinner. While we pride ourselves on the quality of our care, the Sarah Care Way sees beyond your loved one's needs to understand them as a unique individual. We care for individuals with chronic diseases, memory loss, stroke, Parkinson's disease, or those who may be feeling depressed and isolated. Our program is designed to encourage seniors to remain involved in activities of their choice, customized to meet their interests and abilities. Our outings include lunch at favorite restaurants and trips to the movies, concerts, or shopping at a cost that is less than five hours of in-home care. Your family member can attend one of our centers all day and be cared for by professional nurses and activity assistants. Transportation and financial assistance is available. Call 1-800-472-5544 today to learn how Sarah Care can help or visit us on the web at sarahcare.com. That's S-A-R-A-H care.com. If you have a loved one that is undergoing treatment for substance abuse or mental illness, you owe it to them and yourself to tune in to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. This compassionate and educational talk show will help you help those that you love by better understanding their condition and their personal recovery process. Tune in every Monday at 12 noon Pacific time to One Hour at a Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Recovery begins this hour. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Caught Between Generations. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Dr. Merrill at CaughtBetweenGenerations.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Caught Between Generations. I'm Dr. Merrill, and we've been talking to John Hunter, an acclaimed educator and author of World Peace and Other Fourth Grade Achievements and the World Peace Game. We were hearing a fascinating story uh, from John before we broke about how a bully basically got taken over uh, by his classmates through the game. Um, but John was beginning to talk to us about his supposed Apple II brain, which I I don't buy for a minute, all right? But I'll let you go back to John. I'll let you go back to it and talk about it, John. Go ahead. Uh, Well, well, what what I'm uh, supposing is that, uh, you know, the the teacher, our premise is the teacher is in charge of the classroom and knows everything about what to do and knows how it all works and understands everything. And, of course, that's a fiction. So what I've simply done is acknowledge the fiction, and I tell the children it's a fiction, and I empower them to be co-teachers with so when we start the class, I'll say, I have an Apple IIe brain. You don't even know what that is, but it's an old-fashioned computer, guys, from a long time ago, ancient times. And why should I put my Apple IIe computer in front of the room and say, this is going to be the standard by which everything runs, when I'm surrounded by 25, 30 supercomputers in the 21st century, your brain? Why don't we hook up all these computers into, with my Apple IIe and make a super network together? So that kind of empowerment of students to be co-creators, co-teachers, to be peers in the creative curriculum process empowers them in a way like I've never seen anything else do. They get so excited when they start to realize that this man is asking us to help do, do the teaching and be in charge of our own learning. I mean, where do we ever get a chance to be in charge of our own learning in school? And we have some responsibility to help design it and to help 
build rubrics to, to identify and assess the process. So they get so excited. At first, they're astounded that somebody would do that. They're not used to that. And then they get excited. And so that's where we hope to get my Apple IIe brain uh, in gear at a higher level. <laughs> so, John, tell us about your concept of empty space and why it's important. Well, it, it comes, the, the idea of empty space, of course, comes from my parents initially, which uh, their particular approach to life was, we call it the shadow school, back during the times of segregation in the 50s and 60s meaning not to have a preset concrete agenda in every situation, but to be very fluid and quiet and open and to wait to see what the way was forward. Uh, we call it the shadow school as opposed to the spotlight school that some other members of our community had to adopt, which is standing out front and making everything known about what they felt. So from this shadow school, this empty space idea in my home life, and my first supervisor not telling me what to do, giving me an empty space to create this game, the game itself essentially is an empty space. There's plexiglass, four four by four plexiglass sheets horizontally, horizontally uh, layered, and they're stacked vertically above one another. And that's it's essentially an empty space. A clear glass, there's nothing there, and a few small plastic toys. So this idea that we're sitting around this this planet, it's a nice idea, but there's almost nothing there. It's almost ninety nine percent space. So that empty space concept carries, and then it carries into curriculum where I tell the students, here are the problems. I don't know how to solve them. You'll have to solve them. There's no map. There's no GPS. There's no guideline. There's no way forward at all, but something you're going to have to invent and create out of nothingness, out of emptiness. So the empty space, again, is where they start from. The most brilliant student I've ever had in my gifting talent programs is starting at zero, the same as any other student in the room, and I want them to start at zero. We give them six hours of direct instruction, which is not the best way to teach, I think, at all, to lecture, uh, just to give them instruction on how to play the game, what the pieces are on the board, what everything is and where everything is and how it works. Six hours is what it takes to do that before we even start playing. Their left brain shuts down. The analytical part of their mind gives up. There's no way they can take in all that information and process it. But then that shutting down allows the right brain to open the creative part to come up and they start at zero because they are simply overwhelmed with information. And that creates an empty space. Too much information creates a zero starting point. They, they just tune out and start fresh because there's nowhere else they can, can start from. I think that's how the concept works in practice, actually. So, John, as a parent and a grandparent, if I wanted to impart some of what you're teaching um, to my children or grandchildren, is, is there any way I could do that? Well, we, we, hope, we hope you send them to play the World Peace Game now in, in 15 countries at 30 years And, I, of course, I'm still playing uh, here and there, too. There's a website, of course, information. But I think the primary uh, tools that are inherent in this game that anyone can use and that seem to be universal, that seem to be timeless, that seem to be beyond curricular change and technological change are very simple but yet often overlooked. And the tools first, in the first place, would be introspection, self-introspection. Not they seek them. As the Greeks say, know thyself. And to really know thyself, not what flavor of ice cream you like and whether you like Beyonce or Justin Bieber, but whether you really understand the motivations, the propensities, the presuppositions you have on a very subtle level, the nuances of your own mind working, that kind of introspective practice uh, takes decades, really. To do it consistently yields 
uh, a person who can then, by knowing themselves, find themselves able to solve problems more easily, avoid problems more, more easily, and to foster positivity more quickly and, and sustainably because they understand the root of everything for themselves. They understand themselves. So self-introspection is the first thing. And then, of course, we look at relationship building. And relationships in this, this context of the world, this game means not only knowing yourself, but really knowing others and understanding their loves and passions, what drives them. And even if we don't agree, honoring that they have that and knowing that and being able to work with that, whether we like it or not, being able to work with that information is useful. So that relationship is there uh, and it's based in knowing and understanding another at a deep level. And we have also compassion. Compassion comes out of that collective wisdom I mentioned earlier. That it's not something that has to be taught so much as to be given an opportunity to arise. And as children, naturally, you know, you give them a suffering pet in front of them, a hurt animal or a child who is crying in the corner, and they almost instinctually go towards that, that situation to help. They just want to do it. And we all do. We've forgotten it sometimes as adults. We overshadow with many other layers of political concerns and other nuances. But the initial instinct is compassion. So that's John, kind of I, I, I hate to do this. I so hate to do this. But I'm going to so, ask you to um, give us sure, your contact information. Where can okay. we, if we want to okay. play the world peace game, how do we sure. find where it's being sure. played at? Can you give us all sure. that great information? Sure. The World Peace Game can be accessed through our website, worldpeacegame.org. Uh, and our program director, Jacqueline Dugley, is there to help explore all options for games, for master classes now where other teachers are trained to facilitate the game themselves. And as I said, it's all through Europe, uh, Japan, Taiwan, South Korea, Mexico, Canada now. So the website is a portal into all things World Peace Game. We welcome you to step up and join us. John, thank you so much. Uh, this is Dr. Merrill saying, well, not really I would do a takeaway, but, you know, I'm sorry. Listening to Doc, to John Hunter, it was a lot more important, and, and I think oh, just no. said a lot more. So what I'm going to do is um, please listen to uh, me on Facebook Live. Uh, we're usually doing that Friday mornings at 8.30 Eastern Standard Time, and I'll give you my final thoughts on uh, our conversation with John Hunter today. John, as always, Always, thank you so much. It's always an honor to have you on the show, and it's just an honor to interview you. Um, wow. you. You just impart great wisdom. Thank you so much. My complete pleasure, and thank you so much for all the work you're doing and allowing people like me to come forward. Thank you, Dr. Thank you, John. Thank you for tuning in to Caught Between Generations with Dr. Mel Griff. Our program is live every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We hope to see you here next week. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the voice america health and wellness channel for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit voiceamericahealth.com 
The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 